The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. One of the truly great psalms, the psalmist writes, I had fainted, except I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then in the very last verse of that 27th psalm, the 14th verse, the psalmist writes, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I had fainted, except I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of a living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I want to underscore those words, be of good courage. There is in the Word of God a clear, a clarion call that we might call the call to courage. About a score of times or more in the Old Testament, you have the expression, be of good courage. Be strong, it appears ordinarily, and of good courage. About three times in Joshua chapter 1, we have this very expression. Verse 9, verse 16, and chapter 10, verse 25, over and over again, particularly in that book, but not only there, repeatedly upon the pages of the Old Testament, we have the expression, be strong and of good courage. We come to the New Testament and we find Paul writing to Timothy, writing to a great and trusted lieutenant, we might say, one who at this time is in Ephesus and confronted there with some rather grave problems. And Timothy, and this is to some degree, my conjecture, but I believe we have a basis for this. Timothy possessed a good deal of natural reticence and hesitancy and timidity, a tendency to apprehension. I think there's biblical evidence for it. Though we find high praise of Timothy, for example, in Philippians 2, I have no man like-minded who will truly care for your state. All others seek their own things and not the things of Christ. You know the proof of him that as a son with a father he served with me. He was a great worker in the early church, but like all great workers and like all of us, Timothy had some battles to fight, some wars to win, and there were some problems in his life to be overcome. And so Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 and 7, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, the Revised Standard translates that timidity. God hath not given us the spirit of timidity, fearfulness in the American Standard, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or of discipline. God hath not given us the spirit of timidity, fear or fearfulness, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I think it becomes apparent as we look through both Old and New Testaments, as we hear the inspired writers in various phrases and in various forms, saying, though, over and over, repeatedly, like the reoccurring theme in a symphony, be strong and of good courage. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And let me say the call to courage is a needed call. If there's anything that I need to hear today and each day of my life, if there is a call to which I need to be sensitive because it strikes right to the heart of one of my great needs, it is this call to courage. If there is a call that you need to recognize and respond to in strength, in courage, in a kind of valor that ought to be the continuing birthright of the Christian, it is the call to courage. And here's why. As Sidney Smith has expressed it, as he has written, every day sees obscure men taken to their grave. Men whose timidity and fear kept them from making the very first effort. Immense capacities for good, bright, sparkling opportunities, resources given by God have been undeveloped. And daily obscure men go to their graves, fettered by their own timidity and fear, never having made the first effort. What do you have in Matthew 25 in that familiar story of the men with the talents, sums of money, though the principle would apply to our talents or capacities. To one man, the master gives five talents, to another two, to another one. The five-talent man doubles his talents, and he has ten. The two-talent man doubles his, he has four. But the one-talent man, when called to give an accounting, said, I was afraid. I was afraid. I knew you were a hard master. I knew you, you reap where you hadn't sown, gathered where you hadn't strawed, and I was afraid. And I digged a hole in the earth, and that's where I put my talent. It's the comfortable, easy retreat. It's the shrinking back from the vulnerability of daring commitment and action. It's the easy way, we believe. But it's the way of defeat and a shriveling, shrinking, debilitating, enervating attitude encases the heart and shroud-like wraps itself about that soul that keeps shrinking back from doing what he or she knows ought to be done. So we have in God's Word a call to courage. And it's a needed call. It's a needed call because there are so many within the kingdom who do not serve the Lord, who do not even meet daily responsibilities with the daring, with the dispatch, 
with the determination, with the definite sense of decision and commitment that they could and should, and this because of fear. God would not have his people to be fearful. Repeatedly he had his prophets to speak and to write, be strong and of good courage. New Testament writers emphasize God had not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I believe they practiced what they preached and what they wrote. Acts 4.13, when they perceived the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were, that passage tells us, ignorant and unlearned men, but they perceived their boldness and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. There's something about having been with Jesus that empowers men of rather modest endowment. Men who have not in this particular case been highly trained to a great courage and a boldness. Paul writes in Philippians 1 and 14, Most of the brethren, because of my bonds, are become more abundantly bold to speak the word without fear. Here are Christians, not, uh, not apostles here, not brethren who've been over to the Antioch school of preaching either, but most of the brethren... Because of my bonds, here's a responsibility that we share in common, all of us, to take the gospel to others, to speak the word. But notice they're becoming confident to speak the word without fear. Here again there is the courage and the boldness that seems to be such a marked characteristic of the early church. And Paul knows that it must continue to characterize him, and so he asked the Ephesians to pray that I might speak boldly, that I ought, might open my mouth and speak with boldness as I ought to speak. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The call to courage then is a call that strikes to one of our real needs. And it is a call which should move us to the emulation of a characteristic of early Christians. They couldn't have impressed the first century world with their fine church buildings, they had none in the first century. They didn't really impress the Sanhedrin with the educational attainments of Peter and John because these are referred to by Luke as unlearned men. But their boldness was impressive. Their courage was unmistakable. Their fortitude, their invincible, unconquerable fortitude their capacity to stay in there against the odds enabled an inspired man to accurately write in Colossians 1.23, the hope of the gospel hath been preached in all creation. Now, I, I'm not sure that I know how to say this, but I want to try to reemphasize something we've introduced. And I want to try to make us feel the practical import of all of this. I can't know about your dreams or aspirations or goals, perhaps as I'd like, I do with some of you, but certainly not all. But I know that with many of us, these are largely unrealized. I know that many times we strive towards spiritual ideals. All of us, for example, would want to reach others and teach others, and more of that is being done, more and more, and that's wonderful. But the ideal is every Christian within a congregation, every Christian within the Lord's body continuing to share the gospel with others. 
but it's fear that fetters us. It's apprehension and anxiety that overcomes us and keeps us back and stays our hands and seals our lips. And this is true with regard to that great responsibility of leading others to Christ, and that's true with regard to our own personal growth in the kingdom. That's true with regard to meeting the responsibilities of each day, and that's a part of Christianity. Whatever you do, Paul writes to slaves, the principle admits of broad application. Do it heartily as unto the Lord. But how can we do it heartily when we hardly do it? And that because we're afraid. And so we put it off to the last minute. Or we do it half-heartedly. Or it never even gets done. Or we do not even dare to undertake because we're afraid. But God calls us to courage. And that's part of being a Christian. And since this strikes to the great need, because you've been kept back from the realization of the ideal, the goal, the work you need to do, I want you to think with me about the causes of courage. Those great springs and sources of divine might, those great principles, powers, resources, spiritual realities, that can change our lives in this regard and move us away from the timid and tentative, uncertain, vacillating, hesitant way that some of us live to a direct and daring decisiveness, to a courage that moves straight to the goal. And let me say that certainly and obviously, first of all, it is trust in our God that is the ultimate, and high source of real courage. And at this point, many of us, like the distressed father in Mark 9, would have to cry out, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I trust, but grant that I might grow in faith, and the Word teaches that faith, like any living, vital thing, can grow. In the 23rd Psalm, and this illustrates what we've said about the real source of courage. The psalmist writes, Lo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Clearly the figure and the picture, the image of the shepherd is still here. And the shepherd would carry a crook, a long staff, and with it, the sheep could be brought back from the dangerous precipice. And then there would be a rod, shorter, stronger, that would sometimes be used to drive away the wolf or whatever foe that might threaten the sheep. And the psalmist is saying, I can go through the dark and the difficult place. I can go through the valley of the shadow of death, a term that could have had even a geographic significance, as used here by the psalmist, and could from that particular meaning relate in principle to any dark and difficult experience, certainly death itself. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
It ought to become very apparent to all of us that the key to courage is not a greater development of our own personal and human resources, but a stronger faith in the great God. Because it's not human goodness or bigness or strength that prepares us for the chilling Jordan of death or for any valley of the shadow, but it is that one whose rod and whose staff can comfort us. And so it is as we grow in trust in him, and I believe then that persistent prayer belongs right at this part of our study, because if my trust is to continue, if it is to be maintained, if it is to grow, if it's to be possessed of constancy and consistency, I've got to maintain communication. Otherwise, I may on one day be ready to face the world and the problems that are mine, and on another day I might be smitten with an apprehension that almost immobilizes me. But if I can, in the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if I can pray without ceasing, if I can remember that men ought always to pray and not to faint, and so if my supplications, my wishes, my hope, my needs, my desires can always be turned Godward in prayer, then like Paul of old, I can stride from victory to victory, moving on my knees and moving in this spirit of dependent trust, which is really the beginning place of real courage. I believe a proper sense of perspective is necessary to dauntlessness, to valor, to courage. I believe unless I can see what is really most important, that there will be the inevitable tendency to minor, or to major rather, in minors, to magnify that which is insignificant, to be tyrannized by trifles, and the result of that will be that I'll sink into fear. But if I can see what's most important, if I will seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, if I will always keep in mind that there are certain things which should never be allowed to cause very much anxiety, very much apprehension, very much worry, because it really doesn't make any difference anyway. In the final analysis, in the ultimate consummation of all things, is this really a major factor? That's a question we ought to raise. And answering that with regard to many things, we'd solve our problems and we could move on fearlessly. Let me say something else here, too. Emerson suggested on occasion, do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. I observe that Paul lives a life, I think we would all agree, of marked courage. But Paul was a doer. Paul writes, and the writing is profound. Read Romans and you get an example of that. But Paul doesn't write from an ivory tower far removed from the reality of life. This is that one, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and verses following, who was beaten five times by the Jews with forty stripes save one, who thrice three times was beaten with rods. This is that one who was stoned in the vicinity of Lystra. This is that one who spent a night and a day in the deep. This is that one who knows of the perils of robbers and perils among false brethren. 
This is that one who lives a life of unstinting, unremitting toil and service in the kingdom. And this is that one who can write so courageously in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. There is a correlation between activity and the overcoming of apprehension. Courage now is not the absence of fear. Mark Twain suggested this once. But it is the resistance of and the overcoming of fear. And yet we cannot overcome this if we allow fear to paralyze us. And we become passive, uh, paralyzed by fear, because when this happens, we fall into the vicious circle that fear causes us to shrink back from doing. And our inactivity produces more fear. And the increased fear and apprehension continues to paralyze us. And thus a vicious circle is set in motion. Do the thing you fear. There really is no substitute for prayer and praise and communion with God and trust in Him. But from the secret closet, from the place of prayer, we need to rise to do. I've been reading recently with considerable interest the book by John Wooden, They Call Me Coach. Now, you draw whatever conclusions you want to about my reading habits, but this has been very interesting to me. I've enjoyed reading it. I'll pick the book up some more. And I remember in there that he quotes another coach and uses a statement which really sounds crazy, and he makes apology for it, saying you have to analyze that and think about it to see that it makes sense. But he quotes another coach who said, ordinarily the team that makes the most mistakes will win. Now that really sounds crazy. But John Wooden explains, this is what we mean by that. The doer makes mistakes. And it's the doer that wins. I believe that's right. The doer will always make mistakes. But it's the doer that wins. He'll take more shots. He'll create more situations. And in life, of course, in the service of the kingdom... It's the doer who sometimes finds that the door is ultimately closed and we can't get the message in there. But it's the doer who's been knocking on that door. It's the doer who's been stumbling and making the mistake and getting back up and trying again. And how desperately we need that attitude within the church because they're individuals who spend their little cocoon of fear and apprehension, and encased by it, they live out life's little day. And sometimes churches are infected with this attitude. And they cautiously and carefully calculate what they can do within the scope of their human resources, and they plan for that and no more. And that leaves no room for God. Do the thing you fear. Trust God and do something, one noted educator said. And let me suggest that trust is an indispensable part of the conquest of fear. But the do something is part of it. Faith without works is dead, being alone, James writes. James 2.17. You see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only, James 2.24. As the body without the spirit is dead, So faith without works is dead also, James 2.26.
Faith dies when we become inactive. And the spirit of courage that's born of faith dies. But on the other hand, as we do and as we act and as we seek to serve, we make mistakes. We suffer certain humiliation because of mistake. There is a vulnerability then in all of this. But how much better than the pale and pallid and passive life of the timid and fearful soul who knows neither victory nor defeat. Teddy Roosevelt said, any man worth his salt is one who is ready at any time to risk his body and his well-being in a great cause. And this same leader of men on occasion said, the credit belongs to the man down in the arena, not the critic. Not the one who dispassionately and objectively stands to one side and renders his own little critique. But the credit belongs to the one in the arena who dares greatly and who does not consign himself to that bland existence which knows neither victory nor defeat. A.G. Gossip, the biographer of Thomas Carlyle, tells how Carlyle had written the book, The French Revolution, or had a manuscript. This was supposed to be the end to his ills and problems. The poverty, the misfortune of his life up to that point was to be overcome by this which was to be his masterpiece. And he took it to John Stuart Mill, a friend of his, and left it with him to be read. But the maid who worked for John Stuart Mill, thinking that it was just waste paper, threw it in the fire. And the biographer of Carlyle said he took that with a courage that snatches away the breath. He said, oh, that I had faith, oh, that I had it, pray for it in thy inmost heart. He said it was as if some invisible schoolmaster had torn away the page of my copybook and had said, do it again, my boy, and write it better, and what can I do but sorrowing obey? I must write. I must write again. I must write it better. And for long, long months, balanced almost precariously between hope and heartbreak, he wrote and wrote and wrote and finally finished it. And it stands now as a landmark in the history of English literature. There is, I think, there a lesson for us because there's something that I need every day. Because, you see, I face an alternative almost every day. There is the comfortable retreat. There is the shrinking back. There is that course of least resistance, which would seem superficially to at least have the advantage of some immunity from the pain and the pressure the peril, the possibility of embarrassment and humiliation that vigorous activity always has carried with it. So I could shrink back. Or, with Paul I could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 and as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, about verse 6, we're co-laborers together with God. We're working with Him. We're in partnership with Him. 
How can we dare with our cowardice to reflect upon our co-laborer and our partner? And so we face those choices. You ask, what's the cost of courage? I think selflessness is part of it. He that saves his life shall lose it, but he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Those who are most courageous are those who have lost themselves in the great cause. Those who have given themselves to Jesus so unreservedly, without now reservation, that losing themselves they lose also their fears in the service to the Christ. The cost of courage, selflessness. Trust in God that richly repays. Persistent prayer that maintains the contact with Him. The adventurous daring to accept oneself as a bundle of spiritual possibilities and then enjoy life's greatest venture by God's grace, the making the most of our spiritual best in His power and by His grace. The being a doer and not one who passively lives out life as a spectator. What's the cost of cowardice? You know, Shakespeare said, cowards die many times before their death. The valiant never taste of death but once. There's a cost of courage, but there's a cost of cowardice. The Hebrews writer can speak of those who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2.15 How tragic, how terrible to be bound by fear. We have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.14 and 15 But how terrible to be bound by fear. Cowardice has its cause. And it constrains us and it consigns us to a lower and lesser life here than could be ours. In Revelation 21.8, in mentioning explicitly some wrongs which continued in impenitently would cause us to be lost, mentions the fearful, the unbelieving, the fearful, the abominable. All liars shall have their place in the, in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. God hath not given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The fear-ridden heart cries out, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And the word answers, There is a balm in Gilead. There is a physician there. There is a cure for that ill. And the fearful can shake off the guilty fears. The soul can arise in the strength of the Lord. And we can live out life's little day saying with Paul, I can do all things through Christ. And in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that's something we need, not just in those great crisis periods of life, but that's something we need every day, to act with the decisiveness, with the daring, with the definite and clearly delineated sense of purpose that ought to be ours, that's something we need every day. So the choice is yours. You can limp along through life, ill-prepared for this life or the next, or you can stride with the triumphant step of a conqueror because you're walking with that one who has conquered and who has the power, the keys of death and Hades. The choice is yours, and we're praying that you'll come to that one who, like us, was a partaker of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death and deliver them who through fear of death 
were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. We're praying, we're pleading that you'll come to him and come right now while we stand and sing.